The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Haggai, chapter 2. We're going to be verses 10 through 23. That'll finish the chapter and also the book. If you're not super familiar, Haggai is right between Zechariah and Zephaniah. Uh, one more book is Malachi, one more book is Matthew. So uh, if you find the beginning of the New Testament and work backward a little bit, you'll find Haggai in short order. If you don't have a Bible with you or a way to follow along, we will have the scriptures up on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we've given away hundreds. We really like doing that. We believe God's Word uh, is precious and everybody should have a copy. So those are also at the connection kiosk in the back. If you need a Bible, please let us give you one. No strings attached. Um, so like I said, today we're finishing our series. Uh, it's called God Over Everything. This is the fourth and final week that we're studying verse by verse through this book of Haggai. And I hope that you didn't come tonight looking for like a little Debbie-sized snack in terms of consuming the word. Uh, you're going to need a, a knife and a fork tonight in order to do some serious work. So I hope you're ready for that. Uh, I'm excited to do it with you. Uh, so I'm going to catch everyone up just in case maybe you're jumping in right here with us. Just get you close in terms of the biblical timeline and kind of what we're dealing with here. So uh, after the time of David and Solomon and his son Rehoboam, uh, God's people were conquered by the Babylonians. They were taken from the promised land. And then the Persians came and defeated the Babylonians. And they allowed those who wanted to to return back to Judah. And then in 536 BC, they began to rebuild the temple, but quickly got discouraged and distracted. Uh, Rebuilding the temple should have been their first concern because this would allow them to continue in offering sacrifices and to do all that God had prescribed for them to be in right relationship with him and to worship him as his people. But instead of doing that, they came up with spiritual sounding excuses like, it's not the right time to build the temple. And what God did is he sent the prophet Haggai to speak the truth to them that they had time to focus on their own houses And the issue wasn't wrong timing at all. It was actually wrong priorities. And uh, as is uncommon sometimes for biblical prophets, uh, Haggai had their ear. They listened quickly, and um, they began to rebuild the temple. But this didn't mean that it was smooth sailing from there. As we saw last week, they had to overcome the discouragement that can come from sinful comparison Many of them were looking at at how this rebuilt temple was going to fall far short of the opulence and the grandeur of Solomon's temple, and they were discouraged by that. This week, we're going to see uh, God deal with the common misperception that doing things for him is the same as relationship with him, and those aren't the same thing. So we're going to read Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 23, okay? On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider from this day onward, 
before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time, when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do not consider from this day onward. Sorry, do consider from this day onward. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit, yet from this day on I will bless you. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Praise God for his word. Amen. So we have a lot going on here. <laughs> We've got priests carrying holy meat in their pockets, right? We got questions about people touching bed, uh, dead bodies, so... <laughs> What in the Sam Hades is going on here? That's a good question. So first of all, just to kind of set the table, God is using an analogy from the Mosaic law about what is clean and unclean to make sure the people don't just prioritize the forms of religion, but true relationship with him. Now, these folks that Haggai was prophesying to, they would have been very familiar with the language of clean and unclean. God had given them certain restrictions uh, as his set-apart covenant people to distinguish them from all of the rest of the pagan nations that surrounded them. Uh, God called his people to be out, come out from among them, and set some rules for them so that they would stand apart. So these things included certain dietary restrictions, as well as instructions on things like leprosy, touching dead bodies. Uh, for example, so if someone touched a dead body, they would be considered unclean for seven days. Uh, this also, you know, just a side note, not super important, but it does make sense a little bit from a scientific standpoint that God did that because now we understand germ theory, right, and how disease is transmitted, things like that. So not only was God doing something spiritual and setting his people apart as, as a holy people, but also was putting some safeguards in place that maybe they wouldn't have understood. So hopefully you're asking, what is holy meat? My brother Ryan has turned some meat off of his smoker so good that I think it should be considered holy meat. However, I don't think that's what's being referenced here. Uh, in fact, I'm sure it's not. What this is, is it would have been meat left over from sacrifices to God that priests were then allowed to eat, okay? So they didn't have Tupperware or Ziploc bags, uh, so I guess carrying it in the fold of their garment was the best way to protect it. Um, if I'm being totally honest with you, if I had to pick lint out of my brisket, I would be pretty upset and I would have a hard time doing that. Uh, maybe that's just me, but you know, hey, they were working with what they were working with, so praise the Lord. So God is here, he's asking a question about the transmission of that which is clean and unclean. Okay, so here's the first scenario. He says, so holy meat touches something else. Does that then make it holy? Does the holiness transmit from that meat that's been sacrificed to the thing that it touches? The priests answer, no, they are correct. Then he says, okay, now something unclean. Say somebody touches a corpse, that makes them unclean. They go touch something. Does that make that thing unclean? He says, yes. The priests answer, yes. That is correct, according to Mosaic law. The idea is the same as a, a healthy child doesn't necessarily transmit healthiness to another child, but a sick child could transmit sickness to another, okay? That brings us to verse 14, okay? Let's, uh, let's just read that again. It says, 
if I can find it here. I'm in a new Bible. It's got me all mixed, mixed up here. Then Haggai said, so, so is this people and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. And so he got the priest to answer. What's clean? What's unclean? He says, this people is unclean before me. This is what he's saying. So then he goes on to say that because of the people's messed up priorities and their lack of obedience... Everything that they have touched and tried to do has been unclean before him. And this is part of why, uh, you know, they were going to the wine vat to get so much and there would only be half that, right, or the grain or whatever. God was getting their attention, trying to snap them back to understand, hey, things aren't going like they should, uh, and you should probably pay attention to maybe why that is. Uh, As is often the case, though, we are stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked people. And that was the case then. They didn't catch the hint until Haggai came along and let me spell this out for you, okay? Uh, anybody else ever need the Lord to spell something out for you before you got it? Both my hands are in the air because that's me. Amen. I want to get better at that. I, I want to catch his hints <laughs> before I need to catch his hand. You know what I'm saying? Amen. My kids need to learn that too. All right. Uh, the, now, the people must have thought that just because they returned to the place God had promised them, that was all that... Uh, that they needed to do so that all that they were doing would be seen as holy before him, okay? What they failed to realize is it was that God promised to be among them in this place that made it special. It wasn't the place necessarily itself. So without the temple built and proper worship happening, the people's presence and efforts in the promised land was just a hollowed out form of religion. And this was displeasing to the Lord. But... Thankfully for us here today, we've progressed beyond the silly mistakes of our ancient ancestors in faith, and and we don't struggle with these foolish tendencies anymore, right? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Let's see see if this translates to us. I'm, I'm in 2 Timothy 3. It says this, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. We, y'all, we need to let what we just heard shake us in a real way. Because the reality of what we just read is this. You can be all that that I read before and still hold to a form of godliness. Did you hear that? I didn't say it. Timothy did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's the Lord speaking to us. We can have all that stuff going on in our hearts. And what did it say? Let's pick some. Unloving. Irreconcilable. What does that mean? That means you've got unforgiveness in your heart. You've got people you're unwilling to forgive. Conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. All that can be going on, yet you can be holding to forms of godliness. We can have all that going on in our hearts. We can still deceive ourselves into thinking that we are all right. And maybe even fool others as well. That should concern us. The truth is, This will always be the case. This will always be the place we find ourselves in, holding to a form of godliness yet denying its power when we try to follow the rules and do all the things thinking that we can be righteous on our own. See, the people of Haggai's day, they had taken a great risk in returning to Jerusalem. 
right? The city was in shambles. It had been a long time since anybody had inhabited it. It was going to cost them a lot to rebuild it in terms of resources and energy and time. They thought what they had done was all that God had required. And so surely then they were going to be blessed by him. But here's the issue. Do you know what was missing without the temple in place? What was missing without the temple in place was the sacrifices as God had instructed them. Let me just read you the end of verse 14 again so you see where I'm coming from. I'll just read the whole thing. Then Haggai said, so, so is this people, right? He just did the analogy about unclean. So it will become unclean. So, so is this people unclean. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there. What they offer there is unclean. See, without the temple, the sacrifices cannot be done as God had prescribed. And do you know what the sacrifices were for? Atonement. The sacrifices were for atonement. And friends, this is the message of the entire Bible. This is the crown jewel of God's word. The gospel shows us that we need grace and mercy for our sins to be atoned for. We cannot make ourselves clean through forms of godliness, rituals, or tradition. Let me say that again. We cannot make ourselves clean through forms of godliness, rituals, or tradition. It'll never work that way. Let me read you from the book of 1 John. He says this. This is chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. This is a big summary statement from the apostle John. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What are we talking about? Clean and unclean. What's it take to be clean? It takes the blood of his son. That's what cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Did you catch, perhaps in that, through repetition, if for no other reason, that if you sit here today thinking yourself innocent before God, you've deluded yourself. That if you think you sit here without sins, you make him to be a liar. The question is then, what do we do about that? Well, we also see the answer. It talks here about, but if we walk in light as he himself is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. See, the issue has never been that God is a ruthless dictator who viciously curses disobedience and freely blesses obedience just because. The whole point, the whole issue all along, it's about fellowship with him and fellowship with one another. That's the whole point. His commands are not arbitrary. The boundaries that he sets, they are benevolent. They are not to restrict us from anything good, but only to create channels and lanes and paths that would lead us to our greatest good, which is always him. Fellowship with him is what this is about. And friends, we have to be cleansed for this fellowship. We have to be clean to be in this relationship with God. And we cannot cleanse ourselves. 
The only way we can be cleansed is through atonement. And atonement is, is much more than just, I think, sometimes what we think. We think maybe of an animal in the Old Testament or even Jesus in the New Testament paying the penalty of sin by dying in our place. But it's deeper than that. There's more beauty to it than that. If you go to Leviticus, you'll see instructions surrounding Yom Kippur. That's the day of atonement. And on that day, there would be two goats. They would cast lots between the goats. One would be picked to be slaughtered, to pay the penalty of sin. The other one, the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat and would, would place all the weight of the sins of all the people of Israel over that year on that goat, and then that goat would be led out and released into the wilderness. So not only was one goat's blood being shed, paying the penalty for sin, but that other goat was carrying the weight and taking those sins away from the people. And Jesus, he fulfilled the role of both of these goats in our atonement. Revelation 13.8 says that he is the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He was slain so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he is our scapegoat. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, again, we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus not only took the penalty of our sin, but we know that he also had the weight of our sin placed upon him. He was cast out of the city when he was crucified, went to the grave, but thankfully, when he rose up from the grave, all of that sin and the death that came with it was left behind. He rose victorious, triumphant on our behalf. And we can join him in that victory today by faith. Praise God. I hope you care about that, because if that wasn't true, you'd have no hope about anything. You should lay down and die right now. You understand that? Amen. If it wasn't for the beautiful truth of atonement in Christ, there's no hope in this life or the next. Friends, the people living in the land at that time, building their homes and carrying on as if God was pleased and everything was okay, they were doing all that, but in neglecting the temple, what they were doing functionally was declaring loudly that they did not think they needed atonement, or they thought they could accomplish atonement doing it their own way, by their rules. For us today, to attend church, maybe even volunteer, maybe even give, but not acknowledge our great need for Jesus and his grace daily is to have a form of godliness, but deny the power. We cannot live like this. Now, let me make sure that you don't misunderstand me because some people would take what I just said and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew, I knew you don't have to go to church. That's stupid, and so is giving. And volunteering, pff, what a waste of time. <laughs> gotcha. That's not what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand those things are essential parts of serving God faithfully. I, I'll say that. I'm not confused about that. I'm not bashful about that. Those are absolutely parts of what it looks like to follow God faithfully. But they should be done out of real love for him because he really loved us first, not because we think those things will get him to love us. And that changes everything. That's the whole difference between works-based, religious, self-made attempts at righteousness, and the gospel, which is the only true way to righteousness and relationship with God that is available. That's the difference. These people, they were scurrying around. They kept trying to come up with some way to make it on their own. They knew things were hard, but they just tried to just keep pushing. 
But it wasn't until they made the worship of God and their relationship with God first priority again that verses 18 and 19 tell us that he could bless them. Let's look together at the description in verses 15 through 17. I've been quoting it a little bit, but let's just read it together. But now do consider, from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. This description... Coming, looking, looking and hoping that there's going to be enough there to, to keep going and it not being over and over again. This, this really is a definition. This is a picture of what stuck looks like. And I can't tell you how many people I talk to, how many people I pray with that feel stuck in, in various ways. So many of us have felt that in different times and seasons. Like nothing's progressing. Like we just keep spinning our wheels, but we're getting nowhere, man. We're putting a ton of effort out, but it's just, nothing's moving. And there's almost nothing more frustrating than that. Has anybody else in here ever experienced maybe that? Or you know somebody that did? Or you read about it in a magazine somewhere? Somebody? Anybody? Okay. You know what I'm talking about. That's stuck, man. That drives people to do some old foolish stuff. It's, it's kind of like this. Use your imagination with me a little bit. It's, it's kind of like being trapped in a long hallway full of doors, all to the right and the left. And in the end of that hallway, there's an, there's an open doorway, and, and above it, it says, freedom in God. You can see bright light coming through that open door. You know that's really the right one, but that doorway, is, it's only wide enough, it's only big enough for you to fit through. You're not taking anything with you. Only you could slide through it. But here's the issue. You've got this pack on, and that pack is filled with self-righteousness and pride and unforgiveness. And all those things that 2 Timothy said, they can hide in your heart, but you can still have the form of godliness. You can still be doing the things. So you have that pack. You don't want to put it down. So you want to try to find another way to freedom. You see the obvious answer, but nah. So you're going from room to room. You're checking every door. You're going in. You're searching, and you're scraping for some way out where you don't have to drop that bag. Is there a, you're checking, is there a window in this room? Is there, can I find a false door in this room? Can I dig my way out of this room? That's tiring. That's exhausting. Come out of every, every room. Again, I'm in the same hallway. Here I am, stuck again, haven't moved forward. And, I, and I'm trying to use this analogy and paint this picture, but let's make it a little more real. You know, one of these rooms, it might be numbing yourself from the pain of feeling trapped. Pick however you do that. There's lots of ways people do that. Maybe you just try to numb yourself. One of the ways, one of these rooms, it might be to just entertain yourself to try to forget that you're trapped. Distract yourself with some other thing. One of the ways that, one of these rooms, it might be working extra hard to just pass the time while you're trapped and try to get some sense of, of meaning and worth out of something. One room might be one where you just sit in the corner, you scream and cry and just blame others that you're trapped. But friends, there's only one way to freedom. And it's by dropping that bag and going through that one door, which is Christ. Christ. We go through that door by repenting, by acknowledging our inability to make ourselves clean, by receiving the gracious atonement that he purchased for us with his blood, and we receive that by faith. It's the only way out of the hall. It's the only way out of stuck. 
I don't just mean this in terms of receiving Christ in that initial time of salvation. I'm talking every single day because every single day you're tempted, you're tempted to put a bag back on and load it up with stuff. There's offenses. There's discouragements, distractions. There's all kinds of ways that we end up back in the hall searching, scrambling, running from door to door, opening this one, opening that one. Tired, wore out, frustrated. Drop the pack, man. Doing things for God is not the same as having relationship with God. And having relationship with God is what we were made for. And that is only possible through Jesus. If that's not clicking for you, if you're not understanding, well, why is that? Why, is it, why do I have to go through Jesus? Why do I have to have my sins atoned for? Friends, the scriptures that I read you from 1 John, that's 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. I, I would just implore you, I would encourage you, read that. Ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to help you see what he's saying. He's saying God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. And if we dwell in darkness and, and, and pretend like we're in the light, we're lying to ourselves. That light and that dark can't mix. We have to be made light too. And we don't just try real hard and become light. That has to be given to us as a gift. It has to be given to us from the one who is the source of all light, the only one that can actually expel the darkness. His name is Jesus. We need him. Not just to get saved, to breathe, to get up every day, to do anything worth doing that's going to count. There will be many, when this is all said and done, who had forms of godliness but lacked the power of the gospel in their lives. And friends, here's the sad truth. They will not inherit the kingdom. They will not behold the radiant glory of our king as his child for eternity. And so I say, let us never settle for empty religion, but instead seek God daily, asking him to rid us of every distraction and delusion that might keep us from him. Let us never fall into the trap of thinking that we have done some great things for God and now he owes us his blessing. Because here's the reality, we can never truly receive his blessing until we wholeheartedly believe we are not worthy of it on our own. Did you catch that? That's huge. We can never receive God's blessing until we are wholeheartedly convinced that we do not deserve it on our own merits. And so many people stay stuck in that hallway, shaking their fist at God, mad at God, Naming a list of things. Don't you think the people in Haggai's there? I left Babylon, man. Babylon was sweet. They got a river. The commerce is awesome. Everything was great. I'm dedicated. I've given much to see this, this city of God rebuilt. Where's my blessing? What did God do? He wasn't, he wasn't going to bless that foolishness. He wasn't going to let them live a lie. He wasn't going to let them live under some false pretense that, oh, well, well I've done enough to, I can, I can arm wrestle God into blessing me. God will never accept a form of ritual and religion and us just pretending or doing it for some other false motive. He's never going to let us off the hook for that. And why? Because he's angry at us about it? No, because he is about what one John said. He is about fellowship with us. He is about this goal, this beautiful vision he has of us and him forever. He wants to spend all of eternity with those who love him. 
And so he's not going to let you off. I hope you'll praise him for that. I hope you'll praise him for the time that he has not let you continue in error and foolishness. I hope you'll praise him for the times that he has not just let you go on a path of foolishness. Hallelujah. Friends, we live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how this whole thing works. And each of us needs to understand that our ancient ancestors in the faith were not prone to this in some special way that we are not. We are not past the temptation. You will not be past the temptation for living in forms of godliness just because you've heard the truth of it today because perhaps your eyes have been opened to it today. This is a continual assault from the forces of darkness upon the people of God to try to get them to settle for something less than what God has really designed them for, which is intimate, passionate, real love, relationship, and fellowship with him. And it's so easy for us to get sideways in thinking that, you know, the Holy Spirit convicts you of something. The Holy Spirit's dealing with you about something. Or it's just as simple as God drawing on your heart to come and, and just spend time with him. And, and I don't know if you've ever done it. I'm, I'm just going to be honest. Uh, there's been many times throughout my life where I, the Lord will be dealing with me about something. And instantly this list starts running in my head of, well, I've done, I've done this for him. I did this for him this week. I spent all this time this week helping these people. I did this and this and this. Oh, I'm the only one that's done that? It's the truth, friends. We're prone to it. It's not just a maybe. We will struggle with this. We will have to strap on the armor of God and fight against this. We will need God's help to defeat it. We are prone to slide into tradition, religion, ruts of of rhythm that just allow us to coast. But God loves us too much to leave us there. To the degree that he will get in our way and he will slow us down and he will put his hand on your forehead and he'll, he'll, he'll work against you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't know if there's a greater uh, display of foolish human pride than to think that we can do a bunch of stuff and be righteous on our own. That we don't need atonement. That we don't need grace. I don't know about you, but navigating this life and this world that is broken and ravaged by sin is hard enough if I have God helping me. (laughs) Much less if I'm foolish enough to stand in pride and end up with him opposing me. I'd like to just stay on the uh, the side of of Team Jesus and and be pushing from there, fighting from there. Uh, That just seems to make a lot more sense. Amen. That brings us to verses 20 through 23. This is, so basically, the, the, everything we just talked about was, was one prophecy from Haggai, and this is basically the last one we have in the book. It starts here, okay? So this is the last thing, and it's to Zerubbabel specifically. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, so just to him, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations, and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I've chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
Now, Zerubbabel was, uh, he was a descendant of the Davidic line. He was the grandson of Jeconiah. Jeconiah was the last legitimate king of Judah, okay, coming down from David. Now, if you go and you look at the genealogies, don't try to do it now. If you go later and look at the genealogies of Jesus in both Matthew and Luke, you will see that Zerubbabel is the last one to show up in both the legal line from Jesus to David, which uh, traces through Joseph, and the biological line from Jesus to David, which traces up through Mary's lineage, okay? So that, you know, Matthew did one, Luke did the other. You can see them both, all right? So we're starting to see part and understand what, what God is saying here, what he's doing. Now, a signet ring, that may not be something, you know, I'm assuming most of you aren't wearing one, maybe don't have one at home. Uh, a signet ring was a sign of authority that was worn by monarchs typically, and it would have their seal on it. And so, you know, if an, a document or whatever was closed up, we're getting ready to ship that thing off, uh, they'd pour some hot wax on it, signet ring would hit it, and that sealed the thing, okay? So it's a sign of authority. It's a symbol of uh, the power of the monarch, right, um, behind it. So here, why does Haggai come with this special message to Zerubbabel, right? He's dealt with the people. The people are, are hearing Haggai. They're responding. They're repenting. They're back to rebuilding the temple. They're beginning to shift their priorities again from foolish, foolish self-pursuit and selfishness to seeing uh, their relationship with the Lord and his worship as the, the primary need that they have as a people, but also individually. There's a lot to be encouraged about here. Why this extra word to Zerubbabel? And he, and he was surely happy to see that there was the rebuilding of the temple happening, uh, that they're returning to the right worship of God, but they're also still was much fear, right? Zerubbabel was the governor. He's, he's the guy leading this thing, okay? And the reality that he's living in is that the people of God, they had just been conquered. It wasn't that long ago, okay? And there, there were always enemies out there. There were foreign powers out there conquering each other. The landscape was changing all the time. Territories were changing all the time as, as wars were happening. And, and it just, it wasn't, there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of volatility. And, uh, the reality is he was probably in some part of himself wondering if all this was worth it or if they were just going to end up back in that destructive cycle again. If they were going to end up overthrown again, if they're going to end up taken down again. And, and here's the thing. The people of that day would have understood. They knew the promises given to David that there was going to be a, a ruler coming, a Messiah coming down through the Davidic line. And so uh, Zerubbabel being the governor at that time, he's not a king, but still him being in charge, they would have seen that as a sign of hope and a continuation of God's promise to have an everlasting throne of David. But here's the thing. What they couldn't possibly see was the totality of all that God is promising and all that God is saying in these last words from Haggai to Zerubbabel. Because the reality is there was one that was going to come through the lineage of Zerubbabel that throughout time would secure the reign of God and make sure his people were secure. There was a time, what he's saying here, what he's speaking to him is the reality that, yes, you are in a time and place, and I've called you to a mission right now. Right now, it's you in Jerusalem. You guys are rebuilding the temple. This is you right now, yes. And yes, more volatility is going to come, but, but also someone else is coming. Someone else is going to come down through your line. See, the reality is, from this time, yes, they, they had been uh, conquered by the Babylonians. They'd been released back by the Persians. But after this time of Zerubbabel uh, and, and the rebuilding of the temple, the Greeks were going to come, but they would fall. 
The Romans were going to come, but they would fall. The Ottoman Empire would come after that, but they would also fall. See, no kingdom of men will ever stop or even slow the kingdom of God and his glorious march towards his eternal purpose. And what is that purpose? For those who love him to be with him forever. And so Zerubbabel and all the folks in that day, they had a part to play in the mission. They had a part to play in God's grand design, in in all of what he was doing, all of what he's weaving throughout history, bringing to this point, this finite point, this time, when the Father's going to say, we're done. When every enemy has made his footstool. Did, I mean, did you see the language he said? I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of the nations. I'll overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of another. What the, the, the encouragement he's speaking into the leader, into Zerubbabel's heart that day, is that yes, you, you may see more volatility. You may see more in the meantime, but ultimately what I'm going to do is every kingdom of men that ever tries to get in the way of what I'm doing, they're going down because I'm God and they're not. And so it doesn't matter how mighty they look. Do you understand how foolish this would have sounded to the mind of somebody that was conquered in the midst of, say, Rome's heyday? I mean, they looked like an unstoppable juggernaut. If you would have gone back to those days and said, hey, 2,000 years from now, who's going to be in charge? You know what they would have said? Rome. You guys hailed Caesar lately? Y'all be eating some little Caesars, I know that. But most of you aren't hailing Caesar today, are you? Because you know what? Caesar's dead. And the leader of the Greek, Alexander the Great, he's the one that came and conquered Jerusalem originally for the Greeks. Guess where he's at? He's in a grave somewhere. But the true king, the eternal king, yeah, they put him down, but he got back up. Come on. And he reigns forever from a throne that cannot be shaken. And so whoever ever fool thinks they're going to stand up and say something to him is going to get put down. And that was a real encouraging word to Zerubbabel in his day in the midst of what he's going through. But friends, how about you? What fears keep you wondering if full surrender to Jesus is going to be worth it? What stops you from true obedience to him, motivated by real love for him? What keeps you from dropping that pack full of little false securities and counterfeit coping mechanisms? What stands in your way? Because here's what I'm telling you today, whatever you're afraid of, whatever it is, it doesn't stand a chance against the sovereign strength of our mighty God. You can trust in him, friends. He has proven to be trustworthy. He has said enough and followed through that there is no question left that he has the might to do everything he said he's going to do and that he can be trusted to follow through. I mean, he said all the way back from the garden, there's a seed of this woman going to come that's going to crush this serpent's head. That was a long time. And maybe if God was one of these impotent, false, lesser gods, he couldn't have brought all that to come. He couldn't have woven everything through the time of his rubble. Do you understand? This is why the Bible's so amazing. This is why it's foolish to say that this is just assembled by men. What are you talking about? Nobody's this smart. You can't control history over thousands of years to this, I mean, to the point where we have to the point of the genealogies, to the point where we have David and Mary getting together and both of their lines just happened, the legal and the biological side, to end back up at David so all the prophecies are fulfilled? What? And that's just one of hundreds of things we could point to. There's a certain point 
there's a certain point, and it's probably much sooner than most people would like to admit, where trying to chalk it up to coincidence just starts to make you look kind of silly. Whatever you're afraid of, whatever stands in your way, from fully trusting, fully surrendering to him today, whatever keeps you locked in that hallway, practicing forms of religion, whatever you think you've got to cling to, because that's what's become safe and comfortable for you, you can let it go today. Because the only question really that's left for us to ask is do we really want to taste the sweetness of true freedom by putting God over absolutely everything? Is that what we want? We sang earlier today that that's what we want, that all we want is him, to be like him, to be close to him. Friends, may that not just be a song, but may it move us to action. May it move us to repentance. May it move us to trust. Hallelujah. There was one commentator that said that 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 broken down, messed up, destroyed temple just laying there in the midst of God's people, it, it was like a corpse in their midst, just keeping everything unclean. Because what it, what it represented was a lack of them caring about and setting as their first priority relationship with God and the worship of God. What corpse you got laying in your life? What corpse is sitting there making all the stuff unclean? What's keeping you stuck? What's keeping you frustrated? Friend, give it to him today. Be free. It's the only way to true joy. Hallelujah. Keeping all that in mind, may we live full of hope and peace and joy as free men and women whose priorities reflect reality because we are putting God first. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you. Thank you for sending the prophet Haggai to the people of his day. But God, I also thank you in your great wisdom. You knew you would assemble your scriptures, that they would be here for us today, and that the words you spoke through Haggai the prophet would reach and pierce into our hearts today, that they would deal with us in the midst of our struggles. They would deal with us in the midst of the places we are unwilling to yield to you the places where we're not sure yet you're worthy of our trust. But God, when we think about it correctly, when we really consider all that you've done, all that you've said, what you've promised, and how you've come through, how intricate and beautiful and powerful your word is, all the ways you've proven yourself not only mighty and well able, but also faithful to do all that you've said, God. We see the silliness of our rebellion we see the absolute futility of trying to live in these forms of godliness, to try to do a bunch of things for you, as opposed to coming and bowing our knees before you, to being with you. God, thank you. God, help us, please. Help us to come to that beautiful place where we truly can receive your blessing and your grace because we realize that we are unworthy of it ourselves. God, there's so many people here that they, they, they struggle with insecurities. They struggle with already this monologue inside their head that beats them down. And so they feel like if, if they acknowledge that they are but tattered rags, that they are but clay, that they are not worthy in and of themselves, 
of fellowship with you, of relationship with you, that somehow that's going to push them over the edge. But God, please show them. Please open up for them the truth, that, that, that to acknowledge that they don't have to keep striving and trying to prove that they're worth something, that we can embrace wholeheartedly, we can open our arms and say, yes, there is no worth intrinsically in myself, but God, you have declared me worthy. You make me worthy. You take me from darkness and slavery, and you bring me to light and freedom. You gift me and grace me and make me something that can serve you and be with you for eternity. Thank you, God, that that's true. Thank you, I don't have to keep trying to prove something to myself or others. Thank you that you've already declared in no uncertain terms the value and worth that you place upon us because you came, God. You came. You lived the perfect life we couldn't. And then you, for the atonement that we needed, allowed yourself to be murdered and slain. You paid the penalty of our sin, but Lord Jesus, you also carried the weight of our sin and took it as far as the east is from the west. And so now you've declared that by faith we can be made righteous. We can receive as a gift the righteousness that you earned. And that's the only way, God. Help us, please, help us stop checking every other door, trying to find some other way in our own strength. Help us stop that foolishness. Help us stop living stuck and frustrated. God, please help us. Free us today. Take us by the hand, God, and help us walk through that door that we need to walk through, leaving all the others behind. Thank you, Lord. I thank you for those that are hearing this, God, and they, they don't know if they're strong enough to do it. They just don't know if they have the strength. God, please speak to their heart by your Holy Spirit. Assure them that they don't have the strength, but that you are willing to lend them all the strength they need. God, may you shift our focus to a full utter, complete dependence upon you. Help us to understand really what it means that you are the vine and we are the branches and apart from you we can do nothing. Thank you. Thank you that you want us. Thank you that you've made provision to have us. God, help us to walk in the beauty of that. Help us, Lord Jesus, to put you over everything else. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.